Welcome to the Optimize Your Life podcast in association with PopProductivity.com, the self-improvement podcast designed for you to optimize your human performance through evidence-based strategies, practical tips, and advice to take your productivity and well-being to the next level. Sit back and enjoy with your host, Peter Shaw. Delighted today to be joined by athletic performance coach with Leinster Rugby, Killian Reardon. How are you, Killian? Good, peace. Thanks for having me on. For those that don't know him, uh, do you want to give a little bit of background, maybe talk about your journey so far uh, and what you do day to day in your job? My journey so far, I suppose, came out of Sports Alliance in DCU in 2012. I had the advantage, I suppose, of having gone into that a little bit older. So... I was 21 when I started, which, you know, a big difference when everyone else is sort of 18. So what gave me a, a bit of a, a leg up there is at the time, uh, Leinster offered an internship to DCU in third year every year. And, uh, you know, having dropped out of one college course already, I was pretty focused second time around. And from, from day one, I had that, getting that internship as being my as being my priority. So after that, I was very lucky to have some, some good early experiences. I worked with um, Jim Gavin's 2012 All-Ireland Under-21 uh, team, which was you know, one of the first jobs that I had after, after college. And that was you know, obviously a brilliant background. And um, then worked through the Leinster Sub-Academy and Academy system over the last number of years, working with the seniors now the last three years. So that, that's been, been my journey as well as day-to-day stuff. So my job now is a senior athletic performance coach with Leinster. And so obviously, you know, all the stuff that you would expect goes into that strength, speed, and managing guys through on-field. You know, maybe get into more detail on, on the performance training side of things, but basically trying to get guys ready to perform at the highest level. You know, we're lucky that we're with the player group we have and the organisation that we have that we get to compete at the highest level our job as well is just to get those guys ready that's excellent so obviously you were studying in in dcu you went on and obviously completed a, a phd what was the process like doing a phd and trying to work a full-time job maybe there's some listeners out there that have have been through the the academic side um we'll be honest with you that that was hard because of the twist the couple of twists that i took first of all um the reason that i got my my kind of first role back in first full-time role with Leinster back in 2013 was combined with a PhD and at the time Leinster were just trying to get their uh, trying to get their GPS like their data monitoring program around field stuff up and running and GPS was it wasn't really new but like the high quality application of GPS at the time was was only really coming in um, over that the last maybe five years before that and it was hard because it's hard because I didn't have a massive interest in handling massive data sets and, and that kind of thing I took that role because it was too good an opportunity to do uh, a PhD and work full-time at that level when what I wanted to do was 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 coach in professional sports so, so I took it but it was always my intention to kind of segue into a coaching role the earliest opportunity and that kind of came around a little bit earlier than I thought. Um, so I was one year deep into the PhD slash data scientist role with Leinster. The opportunity to uh, sidestep into a coaching role at the Leinster Sub Academy came up, so I took that. But 
The downside of that, I suppose, was that the PhD and my job no longer dovetailed because I wasn't a, a, a data scientist anymore. So I found myself in a full-time job with a full-time PhD at the same time. And, you know, that made for a tough three years, but an unbelievable learning experience for those three years. And, you know, in terms of as much as I say, I wasn't massively interested in handling big data sets and that kind of thing. One of the most valuable things I did was work with data, learn to interpret and just kind of get over some of the dislike that I would have had for that aspect of it and made me a much better practitioner, I think, in the long run. So in terms of like for people maybe that aren't familiar with professional sports, you talked a lot about the data there. What sort of data would you be looking at uh, on a day-to-day basis in terms of a professional athlete? What sort of stuff you're tracking? Or what, I suppose what's really important maybe for for you in your day-to-day job? So for, well, I suppose at the time what, what I did, and, you know, it hasn't really changed that much. You want to have a couple of measures of overall workload of how much work an athlete is carrying out maybe on a day-to-day basis, maybe across the course of the week. So that might be something really general, like the amount of distance that they cover, the amount of high-speed running that they cover. You also want to have a grip on how much mechanical load they're undergoing. So when I talk about mechanical load, I kind of mean like sort of joint tendon stress, that kind of thing. So so that comes from short, sharp, acceleration, deceleration, change of direction. So you want to have a grip on the number of X cells and D cells that a guy is doing. And if you have those kind of broad overarching metrics of how much work a guy is doing, and you have those more intimate metrics of how much sort of tissue stress you might be under, what you're looking for then is basically not to spike anything, not to have an undue um, increase in between one week and another, because what that does is for all the training that you do, there's a deterioration effect on, on your tissue, during your recovery phase, that replenishes. But if you suddenly start to spike your load, the deterioration effect is disproportionate to the recovery. You start to go on a downhill spiral and eventually you pick up an injury. And that, that's ultimately what you want to avoid. You know, team sports, player availability is king. The most valuable thing that you can do for any team that you're working with is, is contribute to reducing the incidence of injury. So, so that's what we would use GPS for. That's what we would do more or less with their load monitoring the gym, it's more or less what will be done with player monitoring and professional teams when they come in in the morning, doing various physical tests and answering subjective questionnaires. What you're trying to do is get a grip on a guy's readiness to train, on his readiness to play, and and have a grip on what kind of stress he's been put under by having a few key metrics and keeping those things on a relatively even keel. So there's a lot to it, is what you're saying? Uh, No, I've probably spoke too much, and there's probably less less to it. I think, like, so much stuff out there in terms of metrics that guys are looking at and guys coming up with oh here's a new thing and this might be important and this might be important and it's not necessarily the case just because something shows you something doesn't necessarily mean it's important so so for me i think that's probably one of the biggest things to sort out in a team training program is actually to distill out what are the things that matter and you know, you can hypothesize as to a million things that matter, but you can't practically stay on top of all those things. So first of all, you need to establish what matters and what you can manage. And once you put those two things together, you'll actually have a pretty simple program. Yeah, it's amazing, even with all the research and all the education that we've had over the years, 
when we talk about objective data for people that don't uh, understand in terms of a professional rugby setting, I suppose the workload, the, the amount of high speed running meters that a player is covering, mm-hmm. like a lot of the subjective data compared to that, just asking a person, you know, how are you feeling today or how's the body or how's your muscle soreness? They seem to stack up nearly um, and are probably the bridging the gap between a really good educated sports scientist that probably spends a little bit too much time on the laptop and looking for that key metric and the really good practitioner that was able to relate to a player and be able to manage his his expectations of, of a week of training and be able to manage his, his workload as well. You've, you've summarized it much better than I have. I think like, and, and all, all the kind of data apps and everything that's being produced now are being produced with that in mind. They're trying to get coaches out of laptops and into more face-to-face conversation because that's where the value is. So we're going to speak a little bit more about the high performance training and some of the habits that go with that. But during this whole busy period where you're doing your PhD, you obviously had a professional boxing career, probably not something that I would have went for myself getting punched in the face while I was doing a PhD. But how did you get into that? What's the background story to it? And uh, where are you at with that at the moment? So when I got my pro license, that was as my PhD was wrapping up. The background in amateur boxing, lucky enough in 2015, when there was a couple of promoters, UK-based promoters, who were making a move to try and do something in the Irish boxing scene to get offered, get offered the, the opportunity to turn over, but wasn't in a position to take it in 2015 because of just the amount of workload that I had at the time. But fortunately, 2017, offer was still there, came back around um, and just had the opportunity to kind of learn in that world for almost three years, which is brilliant. So what does the, yeah. the training look like as was for, you'd obviously be used to I suppose, going in every day to an environment where there's heavy training loads, there's a lot going on. What did the training look like for you in comparison to that as rugby and boxing are completely different sports, but what did it look like uh, on a day-to-day basis for you? Well, that was, that was one of the big things that, that I got out of that period was, first of all, how to manage your time well. So, you know, particularly in the sort of 10, 12 weeks or building up to fights, my days would have been scheduled tightly from half four in the morning till seven at night during that period of time. That obviously hard, but it was also, you know, in terms of what I've learned about being able to get stuff done, compartmentalize different, different things and, and stay on top of the key variables and disregard the stuff that doesn't matter. That was, that was a, really good way to learn about some of the principles of high performance in a really practical way and then see it from both sides so to to get the sort of the the, the boxer's perspective in in training there and in competing there and then the coach's perspective more in in the rugby side of things and i think each one made me better at the other so yeah that was probably looking back on that phase now, I think that's probably the biggest take home that I got out of my short term professional boxing career and was just learning what can be done with a high performance approach when you're in an environment where there's people with a lot more talent than you. And that, that was a, something that I knew to be true, but then I was able to live that in my own life, I suppose. And that was a valuable learning experience. So, how many fights do you have in total? Uh, five, six over three years in the end. And uh, six suppose- over two and a half years. Obviously, the, the training is absolutely insane for professional boxing, but I suppose, is there, 
is there much of a jump from when you went from amateurs i suppose does it feel more like a sport when you've got head guards and you've got a point uh, a real specific point system compared to is it as brutal as it was when you take off the head guard and you're in a ring like what's the mindset going in is it terrifying or are you going this is still a sport to me i'm uh you know your your style was was pretty skillful like you weren't a brawler you were very you know technical fighter as well like or is there uh you know i just want to go in there and beat this guy anyway i can well you're being kind to me there i think that look the pro game probably suited me a little bit better because i wasn't a massively technical guy at all and um, so like you know amateur stuff is it's it's all about technical ability whereas the professional side of things is when you when you open up and you're going for longer and the gloves are lighter and there's no headgear and that side of things you know there's more things than technical ability in play, which is why guys lower down the talent end of the spectrum can do so well. And that, that applies right up to sort of world title level. You see that play out. That's what I found really interesting. That's what I found really attractive because it provided an opportunity for me to, to take an approach where you can decide where you want to get to um, and then strategize how you're going to bridge that gap and then take control of the variables that get you from one side, from once, from where you are now to where you want to get to. And it's not anywhere near as dependent on your talent. It's much more dependent on your ability to show up and keep improving every day. That was my main experience of the pro game versus amateur boxing. So you've had vast experience then in high performance sports. A lot of listeners that listen probably aren't all interested in the sporting element, but I think people listen, one of the main reasons they would listen is to try and get information and to learn a little bit about people that have experience in different avenues, uh, whether it's high performance sport or business, and how they can implement stuff into their lifestyle that maybe professional athletes use. What are the things that you see every day with a professional rugby player in that setting that maybe habits or tools that they use that works? Um, for them and that maybe can be translated into the everyday person's life. I suppose the big thing that I think underpins high performance and applies to anything that you want to do well is having a really clear grasp of what it is that you want to get to, what it is that you want. And then understanding that if what it is that you want is currently out of your reach that you have to become something different to go and get that and then that makes you the focal point of your development pathway and then just to reach out take control of the variables that that underpin you getting from where you are now to who you have to be to achieve the success that you want that you want and uh, and taking control of those variables so that would be what i've seen from high performing environments where People have a very good grip on what are the key things that move you forward and very good grip on where they stand in relation to those variables at all times. And is that in terms of the athletic sense that I'm an academy player and I want to become a pro or even in, in the sense of I'm a, you know, a sports science intern and I want to be the head of sports science in a pro club? Are they translatable, some of the skills that you see and some of the, I suppose, it sounds like goal setting and, and I suppose having a, an individual development plan for yourself to to get there, are they translatable skills as well? Yeah, having control of your own individual development plan, that, I think that is, I think that's the key thing. 
So, you know, in a sports environment, there might be some objective, measurable things like you might need to build lower body strength or you might need to improve your tackle effectiveness or you might need to do something else like that. And then, you know, that, that announces itself as a strategy to you. So if you're saying, I need to improve my tackle effectiveness, well, then maybe you need to go and work on your tackle technique. You need to improve your lower body strength, well, then maybe you need to go and spend more time in the gym. Some of them be, you know, a little bit more subjective. So it might be something like under, in a pressure situation, you tend to commit fouls and get warnings from referees, that kind of thing. That might be more of a mindset thing. If you identify that as being something that's stopping you from moving towards where you want to go, then you need to address that. Then for the listeners that I suppose are training, they're coming out of COVID, they're getting back into maybe, uh, maybe they've developed their own home gym or, or getting back into a gym membership. What are the things that pro uh, S&C program has that the principles that underlie that, that people can apply to their own training or people that maybe are in different sports that have a good grasp that could take their training to the next level? What are the elements that are in that? I suppose one of the big things that, um, that you see outside of, let's say, coached environment. So if you're in a professional environment, you get a lot of stuff delivered to you and that's great. But one of the big things that you see people struggle with when they train like self-directed or recreationally is they don't actually progress forward. So, you know, I would have had this, uh, would have seen this with my fiance during lockdown. So during lockdown, we started training together and I got some insight into what she was doing. She's pretty fit, but essentially what you do is go to the gym three or four days a week and more or less do the same thing. So like the, the net product of her week was more or less the same every week. And as a result, more or less stayed on the same level. So what people miss, the, the really simple thing that people miss is what we call overload. So there needs to be, you need to be progressing somewhere along your training. So whether that's adding weight to what you're doing or adding reps to what you're doing, or if you're running, it might be doing an extra couple of intervals or targeting your five kilometer time to come down from 26 minutes to 25 minutes and 50 seconds between one day and another. But, but the, the key thing is that some aspect of what you're doing should be moving forward in order to make you continue improving. And I suppose what people don't do, the, the kind of pragmatic doing thing that people don't do with that is they don't keep any records. And I'm not saying that you need to write down absolutely everything that you do, but you know, let's say, let's say you're lifting in the gym and that's, that's the type of training you do. You like to lift weights. Well then pick, the four or five exercises that you do on a regular basis every week and just make a note of how many sets, reps and what load you did and then push some of those things forward. So it might be as, as small as adding one rep to one set of an exercise in a week, but that's the overload and that's the thing that causes you to keep improving. So if I do, if I do five sets of five squats at 100 kilos, that's whatever stimulus that is. If I come back and do that again the next week, that's the same stimulus. But if I come back next week and I do four sets of five at 100 kilos and I do one set of six at 100 kilos, that last rep on that last set, that's your overload. So all the other 25 reps, you need to you need those reps just to get you to where you were before. And then you just need the extra rep just to push you forward. So it's actually the most important, it's probably the most important rep. And the margins are very fine, but that one extra rep will cause you to improve. And I think people don't, maybe understand it that well, or they certainly don't do the record keeping that you have to do to do it, which is not that demanding, but you just need to have a grip 
on a couple of key variables. Let, let's call a spade a spade. The, all of the athletes I've trained anyway that have a notepad are always the ones that progress the most and are always the ones that are most dedicated to their training. Or even if I see somebody in a commercial gym, I'm like, that guy, he's got it because he's got he's a on. notepad. <laughs> yeah, like, and it, it, that's... That's all. That's all. That's all it takes. It's such a small thing. Like it's obviously indicative of an attitude as well. But practically, that the, the science of your body adapting to a higher level is you need to be adding those or additional stress on a regular basis. So one common mistake that I would see, and maybe a couple of listeners could resonate with this, is you mentioned overload, and they overload mm-hmm. the weight, and they get to a stage where they put maybe 10, 12 kilos on their squat, and suddenly repeated doing that same movement pattern and adding load has caused some sort of a strain or an injury. What are the ones that people aren't thinking about in terms of overload? I know you mentioned reps there. Is there other ones out there that people can go, ah, I've never tried that. And maybe rather than adding, you know, maybe they've poor technique, adding more load to the spine. Let's try something a little bit different. Yeah. Well, well, the reps one, I love, I love the reps one. Like one of the things that, that I would, do with somebody, if I was training somebody who was completely novice trainer, I would maybe, maybe pick four movement patterns, a squat, a hip hinge, a press and a pull. And I might just start with five sets of five on whatever weight they do very well. And then add one rep to each one of those every single week until they were doing five sets of 12 or 15 at that weight. And you come all the way back down the bottom and start again, add two and a half kilos and start again. And that, that'd be a real simple way of training your key movement patterns, making sure you get overload every day and managing risk very well. To go back to the other question, like other ways that you could do overload. Yeah. Like one of the big things that, that came up during lockdown for, you know, all training programs, but people weren't equipped to keep lifting heavier. Just didn't have enough equipment at home to keep adding load. So, so one of the things that we would have looked at was how do you, how do you increase muscle mass at least if you increase muscle mass then your your strength potential stays high so when you can come back into a gym environment and start lifting heavy again you have the muscle to accommodate those heavy lifts so that, that that's a key thing and one of the ways that we did that were the main way for building muscle is to accumulate time under tension so that's literally the number of seconds that your muscle is active and tense during a lift so ways that you can increase that is you start to add slow eccentrics so when i say eccentrics i mean if i'm doing a squat the way down is eccentric the way up is the concentric right so i can squat 60 kilos normally or i can squat 60 kilos with a slow eccentric that way with the slow eccentric I get much bigger increase in time under tension and the muscle growth stimulus associated with that same lift at the same load is much greater you can increase time under tension by doing holds at the bottom, we call them isometric holds, isometrics where nothing's moving anywhere. So with that same squat example, if I were to go down to the bottom, hold that bottom position for five seconds and then come up again, it's a 60 kilo squat. There's no additional risk, not dangerous for your back. And you're not adding additional reps, but you are adding time under tension, muscle growth stimulus associated with that format of that lift is much greater. So there are some little ways that you can, you can add overload. So really, really simple one that guys could do. Let's go back to a five by five squat. You have five sets of five squat. And then at the last rep of each of those sets, just start doing a, a sort of a 10 second hold at the bottom of your last rep. And suddenly over those five sets, you've accumulated 50 seconds of extra time under tension. That's, a, that's overload. 
that's your fit, that's that's your overload versus a regular five by five squat. That's the thing that causes you to keep building muscle. If you build more muscle, you have more strength potential. Next time you can lift heavier and the there'll be no risk or there'll be less risk attached. For people that pro sports all of the time, the training that goes with it probably isn't the most healthy in terms of I suppose it's got a lot better now in terms of there's such a uh, low risk and that's the key to a lot of the programs is it's as minimizing the risk in the gym and trying to maximize the performance but it's not often or it's not always this the safest uh, occupation is, is a professional sports training program or, or playing the sport itself for people looking to train for longevity um, and maybe just wellness they just want to have a really long life and they want to keep fit they want to make sure that they can live as long as possible. What training modalities are you looking at or what kind of strategies would you be recommending for people? You say like high performance sports got a lot better and it's got better because we're better at managing injuries. We're better at managing injuries in careers, right? Like there's definitely consequences to almost any sport. So, you know, you get this, you get to have an awesome career, but there's definitely a, a physical toll and, Performing highly in a sport and health, they don't exist in a continuum. They're almost like two separate things, right? And a lot of what we do in high-performance sport is actually mitigating against the negative effects of the intensity of training that they do and the, the downsides of games, the impacts and tears and whatever else you have from games. For me, training for longevity or training so that you can show up and perform every day at whatever it is that you do is about developing certain minimal habits that that support that support your ability to show up and perform every day. So the two big training pillars to take off would be to make sure that you have enough muscle mass so that you're mobile and so that as you get older and your muscle mass naturally starts to decline, that you continue to be mobile. That's important. And then you train your aerobic system so that you continue just to have energy and have have, have capacity to keep doing the things that you want to do. Um, it doesn't take a huge amount you don't have to keep lifting heavier and heavier like if, if you decide like we spent 10 minutes talking about overload there like if you decide that what you want to do is maintain a normal level of muscle mass well then maybe you can just come and do the same exact same gym session once a week that will sustain you at the level that you're happy with and, and fair enough right that allows you to stay mobile that allows you to protect your future against you know what happens when you're old and, and show up and perform every day at whatever it is that you're doing. The big issue that I see that people face in, let's say, non-high performance training is the amount of distraction. So it's like you go on Instagram, you've got this guy who's doing this yoga and somebody else has got this new strength training technique and somebody else is talking to you about nostril breathing. You know, and I'm... Um, people end up jumping around from one thing to another thing to another thing. And, and they end up not doing enough of any one thing to get the benefit from it. Right. So if I decide that I'm going to strength train, and that's going to be my mode of training. Great. But I have to do enough of it to cross the threshold, to build muscle, get stronger and, and, and actually accrue the benefit of strength training. If I decide that I, that I want to train aerobically and I'm going to run grand, but I've got to run consistently. I don't have to be massively strategic about how I run, but I have to have to run on a regular basis for a prolonged period of time in order to develop my aerobic system. If I do yoga today and then 
lift weights tomorrow and I don't lift weights for another six months because I'm jumping around doing everything else for that period of time, I end up getting the benefit of nothing. So people need to decide, I think, what role in their life training is going to play, what they actually want out of their kind of training, lifestyle, wellness habits, and then land on things that work for them and just do those things. As I say, what you want to have is minimal habits that it doesn't take up your entire life trying to sustain this wellness, trying to sustain the sort of the wellness program that you've come up with. But it is good enough that allows you to keep doing the things that you care about. And then you can, and once you have that in place, once you know what that is, you can disregard all the other stuff that people keep talking to you about. So you mentioned there about habits, routine, I know during lockdown, we spoke about it in, in personal conversations we've had about building routine and strategies. What sort of tips would you be giving to people after your own experience in, in COVID about building an, an optimal routine for yourself? I would say don't change much at a time. Change one small thing at a time. And it's being successful in making that change is the thing that creates the energy and the impetus for you to make another bigger change. And that's pretty much the way that habits happen, which is why, which goes back to the distraction thing again and social media again. It's like, it's dangerous to compare yourself to other people. You've got to compare yourself to yourself and and, an inch off that basis. So, yeah, small incremental changes. And the other aspect to actually developing a habit that stays with you then is, is some kind of accountability. So to give you an example for myself, during lockdown, let's say one of the things that I tried to do was stay on my stay on my mindfulness practice and make sure that I did that at least five days a week. So the only way to stay accountable, well, there's two ways to stay accountable. But one is that that actually be known by somebody else who's around you. And, you know, so when you don't do it, they're aware, you're aware, you're aware that they're aware. And it just, you know, puts, puts a bit of pressure on you. Second thing to do is, you know, this works for me because I use a to-do app, which I dump stuff into. Um, and I just put it on there so that would pop up every day and would tell me to do it. And then, you know, you've got, you're constantly being reminded so you're accountable to yourself. So you said you were going to do your mindfulness every day. Now, maybe there's going to be some days you don't do it, but you still have to cross it off the list. So you cross it off. So you're accountable to yourself. So that those would be the two big things for me. It's small incremental changes and making sure I have some mechanism of accountability built into it. Just one thing I want to touch on there. So people that have a bit off maybe more that they can chew and they have pretty much an optimal week of training and the routine is what they said they were going to do and they probably put in too much. Or even if they haven't and they get to Sunday and they don't plan their week, and Monday comes and the routine isn't happening early doors. How do you flip that? What's your, is it the to do, to do app and the notification kicks you back into gear and the accountability is enough? Or is there something that you do that, okay, Killian, Monday, Tuesday has been a mess, but I need to reset here and I need to get mindfulness. I need to do my training. I need to get back on top of things. One of the things that I started doing over the course of last year and I found help was just having a general writing down a couple of reflections. I don't mean anything too, don't mean anything too wordy or anything like that. Sometimes it might just be a couple of words on how things have been going versus how things have been progressing through a week, let's say, versus how I had planned for them to progress. So that process tends to be quite good in keeping me accountable because you have to write your reflections. And then 
when you go to do that. I just write them in my training diaries, the same spot where I'd have you know, the five key metrics that I maybe stay on top of every week with respect to tracking overload. I might just have you know four or five entries across the week on, on, on how it's going. And if you're not, if you're not progressing uh, through the week in the way you have planned, well, you have to engage with that then because you, you're reflecting on it. And that, that tends to be enough. I think it's just layers of accountability. It's like you have a to-do app. It's not that you're a slave to the to-do app. You put the stuff in there that you wanted to do because it was important to you. And you should be um, selective about what you put in that stuff, not just dumping everything that you hear of someone else doing and you think that might be cool. Like be selective about what you actually commit to do. But then whatever structure you put in place, that holds you accountable. And that tends to be enough to help me get back on track when, when um, when invariably you have a couple of bad days. Yeah, I think you hit a really key point there with, I know you mentioned mindfulness, but I found personally when I have, say, work commitments and I've got personal training goals and I maybe have a part of my routine and I might have, you know, committed something to a relationship, maybe with a friend or, or a family member to do something. When all that's kind of in one place, it becomes very, very overwhelming at times for, for some people when you were talking about mindfulness, about staying present in the moment of doing a task, I think taking that off then and moving to the next one and being engaging with that task, solely that task. I think people yeah. get caught in a mess of, of doing a couple of things at once and they end up getting nothing done. Have you found right. that mindfulness is like, I have a couple of, of notes here I wanted to ask you about, but what other strategies I suppose outside of the normal things that people do, you mentioned mindfulness, reflection, gratitude those types of things what are you doing to get past those those problems to get past what problems in terms of being overwhelmed by the amount of workload or trying to be as productive as possible yeah i suppose one of the things that that helps me is apart from having a maybe a to-do list that tells you what you're going to do every day is you also have you have big things in your life that are important so you, you know it might be family it might be work it might be something else so sometimes having theme for days might be kind of useful because it stops you from, because at any one point you're going to have demands coming on you from work, from family, from whatever else you do outside of work, maybe volunteer somewhere, I don't know. There's going to be things coming at you from everywhere. But if you have a theme for the day, let's say today is your family theme, right? It doesn't mean that you're not going to go to work, but in terms of, but you know that, the thing that you need to focus on today are the stuff in your to-do list that relate to family. And then that, that, that allows you to, to, it allows you to disregard everything else, which might be exactly what you need to do in order to get deeply into one thing, take that off. And then that's a momentum builder. That's a momentum builder into the next thing. We had a couple of previous guests, Tony O'Gregan, he's a performance psychologist. And he mentioned about setting right. just an intention for the day rather than a goal. He sets some tension around certain things. And even recently we had on Shane Murphy as another sports scientist who yeah. mentioned momentum as being his number one thing that he would recommend for people is to, to build that momentum as much as possible when it comes to a certain goal. I know you refer to, you know, if you need to become almost a different person to get to a certain goal, that the momentum is probably key to, like we were even chatting about starting the podcast you know, you have to learn about what the podcast is about. You have to reach out to somebody that knows it and build a little bit of momentum to ultimately get to, I suppose, launching it or recording your first episode. 
Yeah, momentum is big. Um, and like, it is interesting about when you put, when you manage to back up four or five or six weeks of, of doing the things that you say you're going to do, the rewards that you get back from that seem to get incrementally bigger. So your margins of gain seem to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's, that's kind of, that's an interesting feature of momentum. To go back to what you were saying about, I think you said you were talking about a performance psychologist or, yeah. but anyway, it jumped into my mind and he said that one of the things that I tied in with a guy over, he's like a, a performance coach, I'd say would be his, the best title. Tied in, we got him over lockdown, had a couple of chats to him. One of his big things, I tried it for a while in my reflections was just checking in with yourself. Apart from the mindfulness thing, just checking in with yourself and his thing would be, Stop going to yourself and write down two words or even maybe one word or you might have three or whatever it is, but you know, not very demanding about, about how you feel. And in terms of building momentum, I think that's crucial because it provides context to everything that you're doing that day. And it takes a bit of, it takes practice because you don't um, just, it, it's not that easy just to, just to kind of go, oh, this is how I feel. But if you actually, once you get used to it, particularly if you've kind of developed a, a good mindfulness practice and you have that ability to go into yourself. And that, that's something that's really worth doing. You can actually, you can come up pretty easily with a couple of things that frame how you feel. And, you know, people say, it doesn't really matter how you feel, you just kind of got to get on with it. And, and that's true sometimes. But sometimes it really does matter how you feel. Sometimes it might actually be the most important thing that you have to do that day. It definitely helps you to understand the context with which you're dealing with all the other practical things that you're doing. And I, I don't know how well I'm explaining it, but I think that ties into the momentum thing quite well. Yes, that's really interesting. Sorry, what's the way you're doing your mindfulness at the moment? Are you, is it morning practice? How long are you doing for, just for listeners maybe that haven't done it and want to kickstart maybe? So two of the things that I've used and I've found useful, I use di- different types because, you know, we're quite lucky in work and we actually have a mindfulness program delivered to us. We get, we actually, we get taught about it as well as actually doing the practice, you know, and early on, a lot of what I would have done was guided, guided practice. I think that was, that was absolutely key things to have a little cues to remind you to focus on your breath or to focus on various different parts of your body and just develop the ability to be able to do that. Um, and then you know, and as I've got as well as more and more used to it kind of gone away from the guided stuff and doing it more independently um, I suppose the, the big thing that big change that it was for me the big change that I noticed as I started doing it for as I had built up more and more months of doing it I suppose was it wasn't that my mindfulness practice was getting better, although it was. It was that I started to notice myself being more mindful just in my day-to-day life. And that was the payoff. That was the big thing. Um, that's, that's Being mindful in your mindfulness practice is great, but that's 10 or 15 minutes that you do in the morning and then it's gone, right? But it's when I saw that start to translate to, to the rest of my life, then that that was where I started to get the payoff from. Yeah, no, I've started doing it uh, when I seen, you, you mentioned it to me and I seen your, uh, when you did the, it was a course you did and I just find doing that in tandem with the gratitude journaling that I started, like, I've never been so thankful for <laughs> for a cup of tea in the evening and some small things that I'm just like, this is actually, 
you know, you're so lucky to be in the position you're in. Um, I was actually recently camping on the Iron Islands. I ran for oh, yeah? five hours and I, I was definitely thankful for my bed and my warm house. What do you end of it? Talk to me about gratitude journaling, journaling there. Like, how, what format? How have you done that? So what I do is I basically have a separate journal. It's on my bed stand that basically it's almost my trigger, my segue to when I get into the evening that I just go, I've got to write in three things that I'm grateful for. When I init- initially, when I started, I had questions. So I kind of had, um, you know, one thing that I'm grateful for, one relationship that I'm grateful for, and one material thing that I'm grateful for. But now I just kind of go in and I just think about what happened maybe that day and I just write down three things that, um, you know, could be something small as, the ability to train, that I have a healthy body to train, that my partner made me a cup of tea or had my dinner uh, for the evening or whatever, you know, and it just, it's just a book of positivity that, you know, when you actually read back through it, uh, a couple of nights I just read through it and I just go, you know what, there's whatever is thrown at you that day or whatever stressing you out, you've got so much uh, to be positive for. And it was when you're being present and you notice things a lot more, it probably ties into the gratitude as well that you're actually you know what i've got a car you know i don't have to walk to work in the rain i've got so many things that make my life you know a million times easier than than a lot of other people so it's it's just a a nice nice thing to keep you humble i think yeah you actually touched on something there that i so you said when you started doing the gratitude journey that you had questions you had a specific relationship with material thing something else but now you're just a bit more loose. And that, that's what I've noticed with all this stuff, with uh, reflections, with um, planning, with, with, as, with whatever, as you get um, more familiar with it, or as that habit just becomes part of you, you can be a little bit more creative. You, have to have, you can have less rules. It's like these are the points that I have to hit exactly. So maybe at the start, you have to be quite constrained while you cultivate a habit but once you have that habit built into you you know be it with journaling or mindfulness or whatever it is that um you can get a bit more lateral with it and then you know the rewards start to to expand with that that's that's how i found that working anyway i think we just nailed habits (laughs) (laughs) might leave that in (laughs) nice uh Brilliant. So thanks a million, Gillian, for um for taking the time out. I suppose the last part is how do people get in touch? I know you're building something in the background at the moment. Uh for people that want to, I suppose, avail of, of any services that you'll have in the future, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, well, I'm I'm working on developing a, a, a prototype offer of services at the moment. And I'm looking I'm interested in talking to people who are interested in taking control of their own performance pathways um, outside of sport as opposed to inside of sport and taking control of you know, their readiness. So those would be the two strands. Um, how do you take control of what it is that you want and go after it? How do you look after your body, look after your mind in a, in a manageable way on a day-to-day basis so that you can show up and take advantage of the performance pathway that you've laid out for yourself? So. I would really appreciate the opportunity to speak to anybody who um, is interested in this area. Maybe they've used other services in this area. And, and what I'd suggest is that they reach out to me through my business email, which is killian at killianreardon.com. And 
what I think that would look like or what that might look like would be, you know, a 20, 30 minute phone call in which I would help you maybe with some of the pain points that you have identified in your performance pathway or in sorting out your own readiness. And I would benefit from the knowledge that you have as well. And uh, no obligation phone call. It's, um, but I think some mutual benefit to be had in there. So please do reach out or hit me up on LinkedIn. Yeah, I'll pop that into the show notes for anybody that's interested. It sounds really good, I suppose, when you have it launched and ready to go. We'll have to get you back on again, and you can tell us uh, all about it. But uh, really, really appreciate uh, Killian's time. I think there's something in there for, for absolutely everybody in terms of sport, athletes, high performance, or people that just want to improve small little incremental changes in their life. Uh, I think it's been a great chat, so thanks very much. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Optimize Your Life podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. And for more information on productivity and human optimization, please follow our Instagram page at Pop Productivity or head over to our website at www.popproductivity.com. Until the next time, take care.